everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of The Financial Confessions. I am your host, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet, Chelsea Fagan. I'm also someone who absolutely loves talking about money in all its forms. And today I am here with someone who works in a similar capacity to myself, who has achieved all kinds of incredibly impressive levels of success in her professional life, also has an amazing home that I frequently stalk on Instagram. She is herself a founder and CEO of a company you've probably heard of. She is also the host of a podcast, Work Party. She is a dog mom of two. And she was kind enough to join today for a talk on all things being a female CEO, founder, entrepreneur, all of those great things. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Jacqueline Johnson. Thank you for having me. Thank I'm you. so excited to be here. And before we get started, I want to thank Avast for supporting today's episode of The Financial Confessions. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Founder and CEO of what? Create and Cultivate. Um, so Create and Cultivate, if you don't know, we are um, an online platform and offline event series uh, for women looking to create and cultivate the career of their dreams. Uh, so everything we do just ties back to career, whether you're a founder, CEO, entrepreneur, trying to climb the corporate ladder, like we want to provide real talk advice to get you to the places you want to go. I love that. And you, so two things uh, kind of stuck out to me when we were just talking right before the camera was on. You uh, founded it yourself and the company up through its acquisition, which was this year, majority acquisition, which we'll talk about later, was self-financed. Yes. So talk to me about how you founded it by yourself, like what that meant in practice and what it meant to be self-financed. through. Yeah. The whole so it's interesting. So I actually had a company before Create and Cultivate. So my first company I ever founded, I was 23 when I started it. I had no idea what I was doing, stumbled into entrepreneurship, and it was like a marketing and events agency. That also was self-funded. But that business, which I had for about six years, was such a learning kind of playground of launching a business, like truly not knowing anything, going into it, making all the mistakes that you make when you launch your first company. Um, so when I started Create and Cultivate, it was kind of nice because it was like my second time around where I had learned from my mistakes in many ways and, and still made many more in the future. But um, I knew I wanted to be a solo founder. Um, I had business partners in the company that were more silent partners um, that helped with the growth and strategy and things like that. So they mm -hmm. held equity in the business, but weren't day to day, like they had their own companies and things like that. Um, so more like advisors and things like things of that nature. In your first company. In Crate and Cultivate. Oh, in Crate and Cultivate. And I wish I would have done that in my first company. You know, I was I was the solo, solo, solo in my first company, like owned a hundred percent of the business. Um, and that was acquired by Small Girls PR. Um, we used to, fun fact, when I worked at Thought Catalog many years ago in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Small Girls PR was in the office across the hall from Yes, us. I've been to that office. Yes, that's amazing. So yeah, so they are a female-owned uh, PR agency crushing it in Brooklyn. They acquired my agency in Los Angeles. That was my first time going through like an acquisition process, um, which in itself is a whole whole other job, um, but then started Create and Cultivate after that. So had a new lens, had a new focus, had made some mistakes, had learned from them, and then basically started Create and Cultivate. Got it. So the other partners that you had in starting Create and Cultivate, um, they owned some equity stake. They weren't actively working in the company. Did they provide money, capital? No. So services really only. So okay. we basically, myself and one of the partners, 
put in around, I put in $50,000 of my own money. She put in $250,000 of her own money. We were able to pay ourselves back within a year um, so that it was like 100% like debt free. Like the company itself was completely self-financed. That's the only money that's ever been put into the company. Got it. Um, But really it was more for strategic kind of services. They, the the women that I had as part of the company um, had their own expertise in different areas, whether it was like celebrity relations or talent. Um, You know, they were able to leverage their network and expertise and they obviously had skin in the game to help grow the business alongside me, which traditionally is what you would call an advisor, right? Like, you know, you're giving them equity, they would like help you out in in strategic ways. It was a little bit more in depth than an advisor, I would say, the Mm -hmm. relationships, but it was crucial to the growth of the business at the beginning of the business, I would say. And by obviously by the time we had grown and had a lot of the C-suite in place and 25 plus employees, it was less crucial to the business, but definitely in the early days. Got it. Um, And so so it was a $300,000 startup little seed yep. that then you reimbursed within a year. Yes, Got exactly. It. Um, and if it's not, you know, indiscreet. So at that time you had how many other partners with you? So none, it was just me and that one partner. Just you and that one yeah, partner. Got yeah. it. And you own the majority. Yeah. And that was for the first, like, I would say five years of the company. It was just me and her. Okay. Uh, maybe four years, something like that. So in that first, let's say two to three years where you were first paying down that initial investment and then I assume probably just breaking even and whatnot. Um, How fast did you grow in terms of employees that you hired, um, expenses like having an office, all of that kind of stuff? Yeah. So the thing about Crate and Cultivate was it was insanely profitable from the beginning. It just skyrocketed. So what we started as a test kind of case study was, all right, let's do the, basically my partner was like, I see these events we're doing, they're really cool. I have a lot of access to talent, like let's team up and do this together type deal. Um, I can help you and support you. And I I was like, I don't know, like this is a side project. It wasn't making money for a long time. I still had my other business. It kind of was like in this like weird gray area. Um, And then I was like, okay, well, I mean, I guess let's do one together and see how it goes. So we threw our first conference. It was in Los Angeles. I want to say in 2015, but I could be wrong on that date. And we, um, it was insane. We had 300 plus tickets sell out almost immediately. We had sponsors like Bare Minerals involved. Um, it was a, it was a disaster. Don't get me wrong. Like I had no idea what I was doing throwing a conference that big. And it was like, it was one of those things. I think we ran out of water like four hours in, like it was just a mess, but it was great energy and people were so excited to be there. And again, this was 2015, so like no one was doing this. So it got a lot of momentum early on and it started really as a conference business, right? Twice a year, different cities, different speakers, different vibes in each city. The staffing was small. So the money that we put into the company went into the team. Um, We brought on pretty much immediately an editorial director um, who would be able to, you know, take care of the website, manage all the blog content, things of that nature, an event producer, obviously, because we were doing events, um, and a social media manager. And those were the three employees for a very long time, and myself, obviously. And everyone else was contractors. Everyone else was like freelancers, contractors, things like that. Um, And then we grew up to eight employees, I would say like year two, and we kind of stayed at eight to 10 for too long. Uh, Like I, that was, I crippled that. Like that was definitely my, I just was so nervous to grow a team, I think, because I'd never gotten past the eight to 10 mark in my first business. We were crushing it at eight to 10 people. Like truly we were profitable, we were making money, we were killing it, but like things just kept coming in. And I just kept adding freelancers because I was like, I don't know, like what if it stops? What if all the like, interest stops. Like there's that fear of growth. 
um, up until my uh, partner was like, you need to hire. You're making money. You need to hire. Like you're, you're too you're too bogged down in like what's happening and not thinking about how you're going to scale and grow and you're doing everything and you're making a lot of money, which is great, but like this will never sustain. So after that, I made a really key hire and it was our COO, CFO who came on board and she really game changed like our business. She made it institutionalized. She put everyone on different platforms. She added operations to the business. Um, an HR element. And from there, that's when we really scaled up to 20 and then 25 people. And now you have 25 employees. 25 employees. Okay, got it. Um, So I imagine COVID really hit your business super hard as an events business. It was a true nightmare. Um, (laughs) We, I just like remember so vividly in, I mean, we, thank goodness, had our LA conference Feb 24th. Thousands of people, massive, massive event, which we were so lucky to get in under the wire um, from a financial perspective. In March, we had our South by activation. We had, you know, over $2 million in sponsorship for that event, 7,000 RSVPs, talent book, plane tickets book. I mean, it was a done event. And when Austin pulled the plug or like the city of Austin basically held this press conference. We're all watching in our offices and it just was like, we're shutting it down. I was like, oh my, oh my God. I knew at that moment, like me, my GM and my COO, CFO all got in a room. We were like, all right, like this is, this is bad. Like we need a war room this entire experience, but also what is this looking like three months, six months, a year? And I was like the optimist. I was like, I feel, I feel like we'll be fine by summer. Like, it will be good by summer. It's fine. Let's just get through this. And our GM was like, I think it's going to be like a year <laughs> until we have events again. And we kind of, I mean, everyone kind of danced around it, didn't know. We had to unpack that entire event. We were very lucky that our sponsors stuck with us and like transitioned to digital things. We moved very quickly into digital because I knew that's where everything was going to go when everyone was going live mm-hmm. every 10 seconds on Instagram. I was like, okay, we got to get on this. Um, but it was terrifying. I don't think anyone was prepared for it. I think I went into like adrenaline mode and just was like kind of like that duck above water, like trying to act calm, but like paddling so hard under the water. Um, and yeah, Q2, Q3 were really, really challenging. Um, and we were lucky that by the end of Q3, I think most brands were like, okay, we got to spend money. We have to like get out there again. And we were able to have like a good upswing. Uh, for Q4, and we still ended the year profitably. Um, Did you take a, a hit revenue-wise overall? Exactly. Yeah. So we were. Um, so we were. We did 13 million in 2019. We were on track for 16. We did nine. Um, oh, okay. During COVID, which obviously brutal, but we were able to maintain the same levels of profitability because digital is very profitable, whereas right. events are very expensive. So right. it kind of opened our eyes to a whole new revenue stream and way of operating for the business, um, which was like the blessing, I guess, in disguise. Um, but also, you know, was challenging because we had early in uh, 2020 had a lot of acquisition offers and we're coming off a really hot year, had a really strong Q1. And it was kind of devastating to then be like, oh, we're not buying an event business in COVID to be like, oh, great. Um, so that was a little little rough. But um, that's when sort of the 
the deal flow started to come back by the end of the year last year in different ways, shapes, and forms. I think everyone was scrambling. A lot of media companies were scrambling last year to like buy up things and put SPACs together and go public or whatever everyone was trying to do. Um, and we were a little bit in that mix. And then um, we decided to go the route of private equity. Okay. And were you, so you were explicitly wanting to find a buyer? Yeah, we were ready for the next echelon of growth. Like basically we were kind of at this point where we were like, we can go raise money easily. Um, but that opens up a whole new can of worms in terms of like the way your business runs, the type of activations you would need to do, how you would sort of double down and what your revenue would look like. And that would be to grow a massive company essentially and be up there with the likes of like a Pop Sugar or Refinery29 or something like that. Right. And understanding that side of that business. On the flip side, we didn't really need money, right? Like we were profitable, we were doing well, like obviously you can always use money, but we really just needed like an active partner that would help us get it to the next level. Um, and so we looked at strategic investors and partners that would make sense. So being acquired by a larger media company, but of course every media company took a hit last year. So it was like off the table in that way. Um, but basically what we ended up doing was going the private equity route, meaning we um, cleared our cap table uh, besides myself. Um, brought Can you for the audience uh, clarify <clears throat> what that means? Yeah, so basically the, the private equity firm bought out all of our partners um, that were on the cap table. So if someone had equity, they were bought out essentially. I was reduced in equity. I still retain a large part of the business. Um, but basically, this partner has expertise in growing, scaling, and building membership-centric businesses and events. So it's perfect for us. They've like acquired companies like us in the past. They've grown them. They built them into $100 million businesses, sold some of them like further down the line in a secondary sale, um, and are highly active in our business and understood all of our pain points that were kind of stagnating the growth um, and are now able to help us restructure, rebuild, and of course, finance things when we need them to, to help us grow into an even bigger and better business. So for us, we were at this inflection point where we just had so much demand, couldn't grow fast enough. Obviously, we're making money, but had a lot of people on the cap table that had to take distributions and all this. Capitalization table for, yes, for those sorry. at home. Sorry. It's just a little, I mean, it's like a little, as you see in like Google Sheets, but it basically just shows a chart of the ownership of the company. Exactly. Yeah. So, and the way you structure your business, it depends on how you make distributions or tax distributions or how you run your business. It's very complicated. And as your business is getting bigger and bigger, it gets even more complicated. Right. And so I think for, for us, it was the right decision for the business um, coming out of, you know, 2020. 2020 also um but it was one of those things that for me personally as like a founder having done it all on my own like it was nice to be able to have that partnership going into the next stage of the business and so they have majority ownership and but you're still the ceo yes um and so in terms of the decision making you know i don't know if you um, we don't have to like get into the super nitty gritty, but in terms of the level of decision making power and influence you still have over the company, where are you? Yeah, so they're, they're very much, their expertise is not my expertise, which is a good thing. Like I am the creative, the programming, the talent, like I love doing that stuff, coming up with the ideas, launching the events, doing all that stuff. 
The good news is like they don't like doing any of that stuff. They're like, great. But what they can do is really operationalize and institutionalize the business from a internal standpoint where they can bring in expertise on a financial level, on an operational level, on a strategic partnership level. They can also give us capital to test things, which when you're self-funded, like not the easiest thing to do when you're like, let's just throw some cash at this and see how it goes. It's like a little lot scarier when it's your own um, money. So they're able to really kind of double down on our instincts and gut and say, test it out, see how it goes. Um, And they also know how to create recurring revenue, like which is really, if you know anything about private equity, all they care about is recurring revenue. Like where's the money coming from? Is it consistent? And how long has it been consistent for? And we have really strong recurring revenue, but it could be much stronger. And once we grow and build that side of the business, then we're able to go out for a secondary sale in which they will get a return on their investment later on. So that's kind of that's kind of where it's at. But day to day, luckily, like my life hasn't changed that much. Um, The business and the company and the structure has changed a lot in a good way where everyone is much more streamlined. um, There's a lot more accountability um, and the things that, you know, as a CEO, I wasn't great at. Um, So that's kind of the biggest difference, I would say. Got it. Now, I want to take a pivot to the philosophical because I do feel like a lot of times the these types of conversations can be very focused on not just like the really big numbers and sort of the shiny objects in that regard, but also very focused on the executives. And I am personally very interested in a really holistic view of business and why we do it and the relationships we have with our teams, et cetera. So my first question in that regard is, what is your motivation for wanting to grow, create, and cultivate to that extent if by your own admission you were in a place where you were profitable, you were having a good, you know, the team was happy, you were doing good work. What's the motivation to grow well beyond that? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, create and cultivate took on a life of its own more than I could ever have imagined it would ever get, which is really rewarding because I started it as a way to be like, do other people feel this way? Do other people want to kind of network and and talk to each other and and figure out and navigate this world of entrepreneurship? And it turns out there was a lot of women who wanted to do that, which is very validating. Um, Create and Cultivate is such an interesting company in that it is extremely profitable and a well and an amazing business, but it also has a lot of meaning behind it and a lot of mission. Um, you know, I try to describe what it's like after conferences to get cards from women who like send me letters about how they negotiated a raise or found their business partner at Create and Cultivate or whatever it is. And like that side of the business is so important to me. But I also think as a woman in business who self-funded two companies, who sees like the way the media sort of shapes the narrative of female entrepreneurs and kind of has seen behind the curtain a little bit, I think it's really important to provide that peek and that insight into what it actually takes and sort of demystify what success looks like. Because I think a lot of the things I read when I was, you know, in my first company in 23 and reading about all these women, that's like, oh, I want to be like her. I like, I want to be on that Forbes list. I want to like whatever, you know, it is. Now that I know a lot of those women and I know the way that things work, I'm like, oh, it's kind. there's kind of a formula here and there's kind of a way to like figure these things out. And we can't be kind of creating these smoke and mirrors to keep people at bay from being successful. So that's something that's really important to me and keeps me motivated as I love meeting founders and startups. I'm an angel investor in like, you know, 15 plus companies. I love it because I can give them that lens and insight of expertise I didn't have um, in my first business and that I got in my second business by having partners who had done it. Um, 
So I would say that's definitely the motivating factor. And, and just continuing to provide really fun, really great experiences online and offline is something I'm really passionate about. I love doing it. I love thinking about the experience from start to finish. Um, so I think like I'm really inspired and passionate about the business for myself and like what I'm doing, but also for the people who are tuning in um, and creating these really one of a kind um, experiences is really fun for me. But I'll also say, you know, I think there is a lot of stigma around women and money. And I mean, obviously this is like your entire business, um, but you know, I, I think like when it comes to like looking back on things, I never put myself first when it came to the business and businesses, I should say, that I've run. Like I was just diehard, make the business successful, make sure everyone can get paid, you know, make sure all the consumers are happy. But I would say one of the bigger mistakes I've made <clears throat> or made is that I didn't think about liquidity for myself until it was like a little too late. Um, can you say more about that? Liquidity for yourself? Yeah. So I think like when you're starting a company, for the most part, typically you pay yourself like nothing. You're like starting the business. You've got to get the team on board. You have to build the company, invest in the company and all those things, especially if you're self-funded. So like I did that for years and years and years. And it didn't really, until our COO CFO came on and was like, your salary's laughable. And like, I get that you're like dedicated to the business and want to grow and like do all these different things. But like, you have to think about your path to liquidity. You've been doing this a long time. You've built a successful business. It's doing really well. Like, what do you, what does your exit look like or path to exit look like? Um, you mean your liquidity for your personal personal finance. Personal okay. finances. Um, and I don't think women, and in talking to a lot of female founders that have gone through this process now and, things like that. It's very similar conversation where it's like it kind of comes last when you're building a company. And I think it's just really important to think about it, even if you're just starting out and you're like, I mean, great. In what world am I like thinking about liquidity? I just started. But just thinking about what you want your end game to be, because I think it's very um, easy to get wrapped up in all the sort of, you know, new, like, you know, you treat your business like your baby and like you care so much and then it's hard to sort of let go um so I think that was something that like I learned um a little late in my second business but I'm happy that I was able to like do that and I want to take a quick pause and once again thank today's episode sponsor Avast as a digital first media company and as you can tell from today's episode digital safety is incredibly necessary in all forms and is something very important to us here at TFD Today's sponsor, Avast, has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and is trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy no matter who you are, where you are, how you connect, or how you budget. Avast One offers both free and premium options. So learn more about Avast One at avast.com. One of the great features they offer is data breach monitoring, which enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed, which is actually something that happened to me fairly recently and which as a business owner, especially when it comes to like business accounting is one of the scariest things that can happen. So having an amazing product like Avast One to protect you is crucial. And again, learn more about Avast One at avast.com. And Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your digital presence without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. 
And now let's get back to our chat with Jacqueline Johnson. That's actually really fascinating. I probably am from like an ideological or not ideological, but just like my philosophy on the issue is probably pretty opposite in the sense that um, similar to you for the first couple of years, and I have two uh, partners that you guys have met if you've watched the channel, um, but two other women who work at the company, so we're all together. But um, early on, uh, my co-founder and I, the third partner, came on later, but we, to your point, paid ourselves almost nothing. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, we slowly scaled it up as the company did. Now, I mean, to be fair, the company's much smaller. It's only 12 employees, but um, I earn... Uh, less than about half the employees and right. I but that's a, a choice that I make actively mm -hmm. and we were actually to, without getting into too much detail um, speaking to potential investors earlier this year they got to the point of you know we went very far in the process they were interviewing all the staff like this that and the other um, and I heard the exact same thing your salary's laughable mm -hmm. on the market this that and the other and that was frankly part of the reason I didn't want to do it because I do feel a strong sense that Although what I do is incredibly important for the company, and I'm a unique case similar to yourself where I'm also actually part of the product, which mm -hmm. is unusual for a CEO, I don't think that my work is many, many times more valuable than a lot of other members on the team. Um, and so my question is, when it comes to, and I agree we shouldn't be putting ourselves in a position where, you know, we can't pay our bills, we're not right. able to own a home or do, you know, basic things in life, we're not able to be comparable to at least what we'd get at a normal job. How do you mitigate the really big power differential you have as the CEO and deciding what is the chasm or the differential between what yeah. I'm earning and what my employees are earning? Yeah, and I don't think it necessarily has to be your salary per se. I mean, it depends on the size of your company too. Like for me, it's like my salary didn't increase exponentially, right. but it increased to like a place that was standard, you know, where yeah. I wasn't like earning less than pretty much everyone at the company for a long time. But where I really saw the bigger picture value was in the how do I cash in this equity that I've worked so hard to build and grow? And like, what does that look like? Like whether you're raising money and you're going to take some of that money off the table, whether you go into an acquisition phase, whether you just sell some of your equity, whatever, there's a million different ways you can do it. But it's just thinking about that as a priority. Mm -hmm. But I think like for the most part, like CEO salaries, unless you're running like a hundred plus person or Fortune 500 company. I mean, that's when you're like, wait, they make $1.7 million in sales. Like, you're like, S yeah. what? That's on um, the low end. <laughs> yeah, like on the low end. Like, you're like, how is this possible? But um, that's where stock plays like a huge thing. But I don't think it necessarily needs to reflect in your salary. I think it's just figuring out how to get yourself up every year or how to get yourself to a place where it's like reflected. Because it's interesting because that came up in um, diligence for us as well. And there is like a weird respectability thing that happens when you're in the room with those types of people, like the venture bros, for lack of a better word, or the private equity guys or whatever, where they're like, wait, what? Because men never do that. Like men no, rarely underpay themselves. No. So it's just an interesting thing that kind of stuck with me. Um, and I think that's true, right? But I think that also represents different schools of thought. And I think that for a long time, I mean, I think we're out of it now, bless, but the girl boss era of feminism, I think looking back at it, to me, it's worst excesses were, I mean, okay, it's worst excesses were like Elizabeth Holmes, who's like oh literally God. a con artist, but like 
the worst excesses to me were a framing that because I totally agree with you that there is a condescension there in mm-hmm. these boys clubs rooms mm-hmm. there is a perception that um, their way of doing things is the only way um, they've as you say, never question their paying themselves or whatever it might be or how they treat their workers. I mean, how many companies out there treat their employees horribly? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that in its worst iteration, a lot of the girl boss stuff to me um, was sort of an example of women achieving power parity with men to recreate the same systems. Right. And I do think as women, and I don't want to get too gender essentialist here, but as women, I think there are a lot of qualities that we do have that are often downplayed in work environments, mm-hmm. being empathetic, collaborative, listening, um, being more community oriented, treating people with a higher level of humanity. And we're often taught to sort of, you know, tamp down those things and imitate men. And so I do think the question philosophically becomes, is the goal to operate the way men do and feel entitled to that or is the goal to totally shift how we view bosses entirely and business entirely I think it's it's the latter and I think that I think for me it's so funny because I just haven't worked with men in so long like it's actually like shocking like when I see men I remember the first time I went to like WME for like a meeting I was like god there's like so many guys here like it was so just like disarming because I've just worked with women for like 15, like that's all I know. Um, So it's interesting because I think for me, uh, the way I'm a leader, I think definitely leans more into the feminine of the way it sort of works. But I'm able to, I think financially, being able to flex that muscle. And again, it doesn't have to be masculine per se, but where you know going into that room what you want and what you deserve I think that's really important as well. But I, I, to your point, I agree. I think, but I think there is a dismantling of like the old venture capital way of doing things, which is really exciting for me. And I also think as a self-funded business, it's impossible to get press. It's no one cares about your business is successful or profitable. Um, they're like, cool, what's your valuation? You're like, I mean, we're doing really well. They're like, but like, how much money did you raise? And it's like all these people who raised all this money, who, you know, are on the cover of magazines. It's just not the reality of what business is and should be and Mm -hmm. and what the majority of businesses. That's like such a small percent of businesses. And so I think there's been this like kind of shift in awakening into the small business culture, which I'm really excited about because I think there's just so many amazing small businesses that women are starting out there that, you know, are just getting maybe a friends and family around or whatever it is and like being successful in their own right. Like, I think that era of the girl boss era in a way what you're talking about where it's like cover magazines, billion dollars, millions of whatever, like anything at all costs, like that's going away for sure. And I think for the best, and I think also, you know, not to break this too macro, but there is also the question of infinite scale, right? Like capitalism's ultimate paradigm is a concept of infinite scale. And when you take that down to the more micro level and you look at the very concept of, you know, capital injections of, you know, strategic investments in a company, essentially they're only going to be, I mean, it's not charity. They're investing in you with an idea that you're going to increase profits. You're going to become, you know, essentially a more valuable entity and that they'll probably be able to pass you off to someone else for more money. Um, 
Or if we look at the case of like publicly traded companies, what is the primary driver of that stock value? It's the profitability of the company. Mm -hmm. And there's two kind of issues there that I think we have to look at from a more sort of foundational level. One is that you can't infinitely scale, right? Like even if Create and Cultivate was like killing it, you can't bring more than 9 billion people to an event. You exactly, just can't. yeah. Um, so eventually that hockey stick is going to start to taper off. And right now, the way we often frame it is that that is inherently a failure or an indictment mm. of the model to some extent. I think that's problem one. And problem two is that you can work it to some extent, but for the most part, profitability at, after a certain point is going to be at cross purposes with things like employee benefits, salaries, you know, investment in the pure resources of what you're creating, um, quality, editorial quality, like things like that are always going to be um, weighed very unfavorably against profitability. So how do you correct for those things? Yeah, and profitability is what you get valued off of. So it's right. really challenging to run a business profitably to get that valuation, to get that exit and make everything run smoothly and great and top quality for your team, the business in itself and all that stuff. So it is like a paradigm. They're two like oxymorons kind of like that have to run against each other. Um, but I think like the, I think it's hard because I do think there's something in understanding what you want out of your business. And I think when people start saying like, I want to run a business, like I want to break even, I want work-life balance, I want to be able to like do this, I never want to grow past five employees. I think that's really admirable. I think that's totally respectable and like makes sense. And that's how a lot of businesses operate. Having a strong business, having the clientele you know and love. I think there's this insane pressure to grow, scale, build, like, you know, be as successful as possible. And I think that's really damaging because I think people assume their failures if they're not doing that. Right. And that's just not the case. There's so many great businesses out there that are doing incredible work and making, you know, maybe 500,000 in revenue a year and everyone's paid fairly and happy and it's going well. And like, maybe they'll grow a little bit. Maybe they won't. Like, that's okay. And I think that narrative of sort of the types of small businesses has kind of gone by the wayside where it's just... I always jokingly say that we're more like a Greek diner than a media company because like we're actively not trying to scale at a really fast pace or... I mean, we are not opposed to scaling at all, but like that's definitely not the goal. Yeah. We're explicitly not trying to maximize profits. And we've actually several times explored the idea of becoming a nonprofit. There's a lot of problems in that. I can do a whole video about that later. Um, but it does sometimes feel unfortunately that... So we do have paradigms like that, like right, uh, a restaurant, a shop, you know, there are certain small businesses that we sort of mentally can put into a box of mm. like, they're there to, you know, um, make a product they love, pay everyone a fair wage, go home at the end of the day. And then we have businesses in other categories, media being a good example, where the paradigm and the model really only is that chasing of infinite scale. Right. And I, th I think they're too far apart. There has to be like a middle of the road. And there has to be sort of, you know, different strategic exits for all of those people that make sense. And I, I just think that we've gotten so, and I'm like a victim of it too. Like I've gotten, you know, ate up and like, okay, I have to be doing this. I have to be making this happen. I have to grow. Um, you know, just because if you're in that mix, it's like how it goes and you start feeling bad about yourself. Like I never... I would have times where I'd go to my partners and I'm like, we need to raise money. And they were like, we don't. We make money. And I was like, yeah, I know, but like everyone, like we should just go do it. And it was like, no, you, there's that pressure to go out and raise and 
do the whole thing. And it's just, I mean, some businesses absolutely need it, but like just run a good company, you know, and enjoy that. How many hours a week do you work? Oh my God. Um, well, it's, it's kind of funny because it's definitely decreased. It's starting to ramp up again, but it definitely decreased during COVID. It was kind of crazy because I traveled all the time. I was Mm -hmm. always on a plane, like always going to the next big event, nights, weekends, whatever. Um, so previous, I mean, I was probably clocking a hundred hour weeks, like for the most part, um, which is so many. It's so many. I worked all the time. Like on Sunday, I I would work like eight hour days on Sunday, every Sunday for forever. Oh no, (laughs) girl. It was a lot, but like I was so in it and I honestly enjoyed it. Like I always try to tell people that because everyone's like, oh, I'm like, yeah, but I was like building, like growing, building, like doing the thing. And I really enjoyed it. When COVID hit, it was very strange for me because it was like one, all of our events got canceled. We were transitioning and doing a bunch of stuff on digital, but that doesn't require building sets and heavy lifts and like traveling, like all these different things. So I had so much time, um, which was nice. You know, I started working out. I started like integrating things into my life that I never had time for that I really love doing and that I'll bring back with me when we get back to normal. Um, but I would say now probably like 50 to 60 hours a week, I would say. Maybe if I'm like lucky, like 40 on the norm scale. <laughs> but I get up early. Like I wake up really early and work before anyone get like three hours. I work from like six to nine um, just because I feel like I get a lot done in those hours. But I will like clock at like 536. Like I'm like done. We are very, our big thing this year is we're doing a four-day work week and we're very passionate about it. I feel like maybe challenge yourself to try it for a little bit. I know. I feel like I should. I think like, you know, working from home, it's just been so different. Like I, it's funny because it was always a struggle when pre-COVID because we traveled a lot. Everyone wanted to work from home, but, and like we had comp days. So if you like worked a weekend, you get a day off, like whatever, but it was getting so complicated with the amount of people. Cause it'd be like, we have 25 comp days we have to put in. So it's like the whole company's out for like essentially a month, like figuring out the staggering of that and the work from home thing. And it was such a nightmare and we couldn't get it right because it was just too challenging to have to be in that hands-on of an environment with events and have people working. And like no one was Zooming at that time. Like there was no like language everyone spoke. So it's fascinating now like that we've been able to do it so successfully. Um, And we're going back to flexible work. Like, you know, we're having like option to be in the office, things like that, which I'm really excited about. But um, I'm so much more productive at home. It's really interesting. So even with this new thing, I was like at least three days a week, I'll be working from home, which to me feels like a nice that thing. is nice. But I love the I love an idea of a four-day work week. I think it's awesome. You know, it's so funny. Like, we had been throwing around the idea of doing it for a while because we always did summer Fridays. And although Same. we technically worked till 12, like, we basically didn't work much on Fridays. And it was kind of, like, useless to even have that day for the most part because, like, nothing productive was happening on it. And we had several staff members, like, who, when we were, like, holding the initial meeting, um, were like, I don't think I'll be able to do it. Like, I really don't. And interestingly, we just recently did our, like, first follow-up and survey and everything. And everyone universally is like, I, you know, I'll check my email here and there. Like I'll occasionally like send something out if I have to, but I'm pretty much not at all working on Fridays and I get everything done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I mean, there are a lot of sociological studies that show that in a given 40 hour work week, people are only actually working a very small amount of time. Right. Um, And a lot of that is just taking up, you know, you browse your phone, you make a call, you have a snack, you watch a video. Like, 
And when you don't do all of that stuff, I think you really do realize that you're we're all much more productive than we think we are. We're just stretching ourselves out over this frankly quite arbitrary schedule like we only it was only like a hundred years ago I think that they instituted the five-day work week and it was really built around industrial work like we're now working with computers at desks that can be done from anywhere do we need to have you know the exact same model yeah no I think it's gonna flip after COVID I'm curious to see I mean there's been a lot of articles I'm sure you've seen about the great resignation where everyone's gonna start leaving their jobs that either go back to the office or go back to like whatever you know type of thing or they're like wait I can actually work like people can hire remotely like we started hiring people remotely during COVID that worked not in Los Angeles and they were amazing and it's like you can now live anywhere work for anyone it's gonna fundamentally shift the way work is done I'm I'm convinced I just I'm curious to see the way big companies react, yeah. small companies react, because it's it's kind of been interesting to see everyone sort of like be like, okay, we're doing, are we doing, are we going back? Okay, we're going back. Like, and then you have the one guy, I forget who it was, that was like, if you, if I'm here, you're here. Like the CEO of Morgan, I think it was Morgan Stanley. I don't know, but I was like, God, this is gonna get. But he was like, we don't, we can't pay New York salaries if you don't live in New York. Basically, is like what he was saying. Which I have real problems with. Yeah. I really don't think that should be as acceptable as it is. Because ultimately, if you're paying someone based on the value of their labor and based fairly upon their qualifications, that should be their rate regardless of where they live. Um, Also, if they're not an office, that represents a huge savings for you as a business owner. Like You don't have to pay for their office space. So one of the last things I wanted to talk to you about, and this was something um, that you guys asked about as well. So the relationship between um, being a founder, CEO, having this very um, kind of not necessarily uh, dominant, because I'm sure we both have other hobbies and interests, but a a professional life that really takes up a lot of our Mm -hmm. um, space and energy and identity and having a family. Um, I think, again, similar to moving on from girl boss, we've also moved on from having it all as Mm -hmm. like a paradigm. And I think there are a lot more nuanced conversations now about um, professional family sort of dynamics and how they can be navigated. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts on it are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I'm married. I don't have any kids. I'm 36. Um, And I think my husband's 42. And, you know, he definitely wants kids. We've definitely talked about it. I have felt like in the past, if I had kids, it would have held me back in my career, um, which is depressing. Um, but just by nature of the fact that like I am the breadwinner in our household, I am the one running the company previous to this completely like on my own. Um, and that pressure is debilitating um, in a lot of ways. And I see women do it all the time. I think it's amazing. But I think I have so many friends that have kids that are incredibly successful entrepreneurs and like I see the real struggle of how it works and I think there's definitely now an unveiling of that um honesty which I think is starting to happen which I think is really important but I mean I think it's for me personally it's been a difficult decision you know I think it's something that I've put off for like a very long time and um you know I'm not really sure where I'll land on it um and it's it's a weird feeling in that way but I think that um you know we as women put so much pressure on ourselves to do everything like 100 percent um and I think when it comes to something like this to your point it's not the 
look at me, I'm doing it all. It's like, how am I doing it? Like, who's here to support me? And how do I create that like village mentality to get myself through this? Because I think a lot of women I know, you know, have suffered from postpartum depression, have had to go back to work too early or, you know, whatever it might be. And I think like those issues aren't getting talked about um, openly um, as well. What about you? Well, um, I'm child free by choice, baby. Everyone who's listened to this show knows I am that CBC. And some of you guys are like, Chelsea has two topics, child free by choice and like pay transparency. And I'm like, listen, this is my show. Tune out if you don't like it. Anyway. I have a lot of friends that are that way as well. And a majority, I would say, of my friends are in that boat. Um, I go back and forth still of like maybe, I don't know, but I have so much respect for people that are just like, this is my choice and I, this is the path I'm going. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, there's no wrong way to do it. There's no right way there's to do like, it. Yeah. I do think for an internal litmus test, and certainly this is not like a therapy session, you don't have to answer this no, question in real time. Yeah. But I do think an interesting thing for my husband and I have been like over the past like 18 months, a lot of people around us have gotten pregnant or started having kids. We become aunts and uncles for the first time. Like this has all happened. And I think a really good gut check for us has been what is your feeling when that happens? Because every time and increasingly so with each couple that this happens with, our feeling is like, we are so happy for you. We cannot wait to spoil this baby rotten. Thank God this is not us. Yeah. You know, not in like a, oh my God, it's the worst thing possible, but like this is so not our journey. And in that being so clearly not our journey, we feel even more happy for those people and even more like, I want to support you in this in any way that I can because I know it's going to be tough for you and we're going to have a lot of freedom and privilege and we want to be there for you. Totally. My sister just had a kid. um, She's two years old. I was just down there for her birthday. And I think it's like, especially when you see someone close to you like that, you know, go through it, you're like, oh, wow, like seeing the reality of it all. But I think that is a good way to kind of put it. I think it's always just like, where does this fit into my life? Like, what do I want long term? I'm also just, I feel like I'm in an interesting place in my life because I've just been so head down building a company for eight plus years to actually have space to breathe. And COVID kind of accidentally provided that for me to like think about the future and what you want in like a new chapter of like all these things are like kind of new to me. So I'm like slightly overwhelmed, honestly, of like, who am I? (laughs) Like post COVID, like we all almost died. Like, what do we want out of life? You know, kind of having those like existential moments. Um, and kids is definitely on the list of like, what's happening. Um, so we'll see. That is really interesting. Um, out of curiosity. So you probably have enough money personally now that like you could retire if you wanted to, is that fair to say? Yeah. (laughs) What motivates you financially? Um, I think for me, I love working. I'm like addicted to working in a good way, I would say. I love putting output, like creative output. Like when I look at my life and what gives me joy and what makes me feel value, it's relationships, friendships, of course. But a large chunk of that is work. Um, And I love it. And so I think for me, What keeps me motivated from like a financial perspective is really seeing other women make money. I think it's really something I've been especially motivated by in the last couple of years, not only angel investing in companies, but really just supporting women on their journey um, to get to a place where they can have that generational wealth that they maybe didn't have before that can really change their life and then helping them put that money to good use. I mean, it's so fascinating because after the Create and Cultivate acquisition, 
I got probably around 15 emails from different female founders, some of which run companies you've definitely heard of, some of which are smaller that were just like, how did you do it? How do we do this? Like, how do we get to a place where we can do that? And I was like, yes, like, let's have these conversations and like, let's get you paid for the hard work and like, let's make this happen. Because I just think women, from my experience, invest in other women, like even from Create and Cultivate and me personally, like I hire female florists, female caterers, like, you know, when we're doing all these different events, like I hire as much women owned businesses as possible. Mm -hmm. When I like decorated my house, I had majority women owned brands in my house. Like I always am trying to be cognizant of that. And I think women who have done the work and made their money are also like that. So I do think from a larger power structure, more women making that larger amount of money being able to pay it forward to other women is how we'll actually see real change in a workplace setting in a dynamic is by having women have generational wealth, not just like white men, um, I think is just really important. And so for me, that's like what motivates me. That's what's exciting. I love people who are just starting their businesses and like the nascent stages and how I can help and grow and build um, alongside them. Well, to your earlier point, one area where I think that men would have the right to to own it and you are not necessarily given that grace is I think men are very societally able to say like I love my job my passion is my work my passion is what I create professionally and that's where my interest and validation and motivation lie and people would say well that's that's okay that's enough and I think for women it's often like okay but you still want to be a wife and mom right and you still want to like you know have all of these other interests that we put on to women and not saying that you don't want them but it's a woman who says, this is what I want and not these other things, I think is really pushed back against. And I do think it's interesting when it comes to the having it all, like a lot of, you know, you were saying, you know, at a time you were working a hundred hours a week, which is your choice. And you said you were fulfilled in that and honestly work. Like if you want to work a hundred hours a week, you totally should. Um, and a man in that space, I think would never have even been pushed to consider whether or not, for example, he should also be a father while working 100 hours a week. Like, I think you probably had the wherewithal to be like, this would be unfair to a kid. But men often don't. And I think what we often underestimate is that, like, people who grew up with fathers that worked 100 hours a week, and many people did, like, that wasn't good either. Like, that is the paradigm that I think we need to shift Shift. is, like, if you are someone who is truly motivated by work, and that is where your interests lie, and that is where you're dedicating your time and effort, like, cool but like you can't do that and five other things and you have we have to be okay to say that's my thing yeah and that's my thing and yeah it's fascinating having gone into these meetings to you know talk about funding or acquisition or whatever the amount of times I got asked when I was gonna have kids was shocking are we getting into lawsuit oh my god because (laughs) that is like borderline lawsuit no for sure it was crazy and our CFO when she started coming up it was like my jaw is on the floor like it's insane and one of the reasons why I actually love the private equity firm we went with is they were super respectful of the process but also very like we like our CMO gave birth literally during the deal and we're like, some people were like, I'm just picturing her in the room. No, sorry, like giving birth. Truly, like it was, it was like crazy. But it was like, no, we need to give her her time. And like I've heard stories where similarly, someone had to give birth during the deal, and they were like, no, we need her to sign this. She needs to get on the call. Like people were pushing, and it was like the most insane, like so disrespectful. Um, so it's, it's barbaric. Finding good people that like you know aren't monsters. Hundred <laughs> percent. And like the number of like boomer men business people that I have interacted with who like proudly talk about working hundred hour weeks or whatever have four kids. Oh, yeah. I'm like a cool job, dad. Like, 
And the thing is that, listen, I work 32 hours a week. I just don't want kids because I'm a selfish heathen. But I <laughs> will I will say that truly it is. It, it takes, I think, a strong person to be like, I, I love this yeah. and this is what I want. So to finish up, we have, as you guys know, our rapid fire questions. Oh, God, okay. It's whatever comes to the dome. Uh, no right or wrong answers. Feel free to pass. Just pulling them up. Give me a second. Where are they? Here we are. <clears throat> what is the big financial secret of your industry? And if we could talk venture capital, I think that would be very interesting. Ooh, big financial secret. I mean, I would say only take as much money as you need. I think people get caught up in uh, taking as much money as they can get. And I think that's a bad financial decision. Love that. What do you invest in versus what are you cheap about? Oh, man. Uh, real estate. Like, I'm I'm on Zillow and Redfin, like, every day of my life. Invest in real estate. I'm cheap about probably clothes, honestly. Like, I... Where's that t-shirt from? Zara. What? Yes. Okay. I was like, I thought no, that was, like, some perfect. fancy designer. See, this is what I'm saying. It's ah. not, like, I... But it's funny. Like, every now and then I'll be like, I'm going to up-level. Like, this is it. I'm going to buy that $1,000 dress. And then I get it. And then it's like, you wear it once and it kind of falls apart. And it's the most depressing. I can't get behind it. Yeah, no, me either. So close. Uh, what has been your best investment and why? Uh, I mean, back to real estate, but definitely my first house. So I bought that house, um, right after the acquisition from small girls. And it was obviously a big investment. I was like very nervous about it. I put a lot of money down, um, in Los Angeles and that it's like doubled in value. And that's the house you currently live in. No, it's the first house I bought. Um, and it was just in a really, um, it was so funny because my aunt's a real estate broker and she was like, get it, do it. And I was like, oh no, like it's it's a terrifying decision that you yeah. have to make very quickly. Um, and it ended up being like an incredibly smart investment. And you, what, what can you give us a percentage what you made yeah, in return? Yeah, well, so we bought it for 895,000. Um, we put about like, I would say 150,000 into it and it's worth like 1.8 now. Wow. And you sold it or you hold, no, hold on? No, we still have it. Yeah. We're going to hope Damn. What do you it. what do you do with it? We're renting it. Oh, okay. So, right. yeah. Duh. Income property. <laughs> it's just like there. It's just like their second residence that they go yeah. hang out in. Um I would do that if I could. Uh what has been uh your biggest money mistake and why? I mean, I think probably not putting my money in like a money market or a money making account early on, you know, in my 20s, I think I didn't. And it's funny how many people I talk to that are like, wait, what do you mean? I'm like, no, you put your money in an account that earns interest and like you grow it over time. And I think I just learned that along like later in life. And I wish I would have done it earlier. Compound interest. That's true. Uh, what is your biggest current money insecurity? I mean, COVID, I guess, <laughs> like in the sense of, you know, things aren't things were normal for so long. And I think we really took that for granted in terms of like financials. And of course you get up and you go and you work and you do this and that, and that just like leveled everything that we knew about money and, and how it works. So I think like still rebounding from that a little bit, it's like making me nervous. Um, what has been the financial habit that has helped you the most? Uh, I think, um, getting alerts on my credit card charges like I get them sent to my phone and I feel like it's always helpful because it's so easy to just like swipe and swipe and swipe and swipe and swipe and then all of a sudden you're like oh yeah that thing and also just disturbing how much Postmates I order it's like really upsetting wish I could say that I didn't relate to that and lastly <laughs> when did you first feel successful and what does that word mean to you uh, I think I first felt successful when I was on the Forbes 30 under 30 list it was like a huge you were one of those gals I was one of those I was 29 it was like I was holding on I was like this is it um but it it was nice to be recognized by a business publication I think I'd you know gotten press and fashion and beauty and blah 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 and I think it was just like a really big moment for me and um yeah that was great 
What well was learned. it? Was there a second question? Wait. No. Uh, what does the word success mean to you? Oh, success. I think being ha- being happy when you wake up and what you do every day. I think if you wake up and dread that meeting or that you know whatever it might be, it's like you got to just switch it up. Love that. Well, it has been such a pleasure. I have truly, really appreciated your candor, and I think few uh, CEOs and founders um, speak as as thoughtfully and honestly as you do about oh, these things. Thank so you. it's been a pleasure. Um, and if people want to learn more about you and what you do, where do they go? Yeah, so you can follow us on Instagram at Create Cultivate at Work Party is our podcast, and I'm at Jacqueline R Johnson or CreateCultivate.com. Go look at that house. My goodness. <laughs> My goodness. All right, guys. Thank you for tuning in. And I will see you next Monday on an all new episode of the Financial Confessions. Goodbye.